You are now listening to the February 18th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Psalms, This Is My Song, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with Psalms, This Is My Song. Hello, this is Terry with Psalms, This Is My Song, a time in which we confess our hearts to the Lord. Isn't it difficult to keep a spiritual and faithful life? I think all we have to do is believe in and follow Jesus and obey His words, but that is not easy. Living a spiritual and faithful life means seeking and waiting for something that is intangible. But our faith gets shaken because of the things that are tangible. This is especially true when there are trials in our life even though we believe we have been faithful in obedience to God's word and have been living honest and holy lives. Our hearts become heavy and burdened when those people who regard God's words lightly or even laugh at them live successful lives and appear to be happy. We become doubtful and question ourselves when we witness these things. We must have experienced asking ourselves these questions. Is it really worthwhile to put all this effort into trying to follow God's word? I am doing my best to avoid sin and doing my best to live a holy and sanctified life, but it seems like it is all in vain. Look at these people. They are not living holy lives. They are not living lives that are consecrated to God. But they all seem to be comfortable and appear to become wealthier day by day. Perhaps I am mistaken with what I believe. It looks like the writer of Psalm 73, which we will share today, also experienced the same feelings. The name of the writer who wrote Psalm 73 is Asaph. He is of the tribe of Levi and served in the sanctuary of God. He must have desired to live a holy life because he was a Levite who served in the holy sanctuary of God. But it seems like people around him who did not fear God were successful and wealthy. Asaph complained as he saw the prosperity of the wicked. These sinners are proud, speak evil, and are arrogant all their lives, but they become wealthy day by day. They don't experience any hardship and disasters, but live healthy and comfortable lives and die peacefully without any pain. Doesn't this sound like the same complaint we make against the world? It kind of comforts us that someone like Asaph, who lived a holy life, has the same complaints that we do. But we shouldn't stop at just being comforted. We must learn from Asaph of how he resolved his envy and bitterness. Psalm 73 describes how he resolved these emotions, and it is amazing. When we read Psalm 73 verses 16 and 17, it looks like Asaph went into the sanctuary of God to carry out his duties with these complaints. But when he went inside the sanctuary where God's presence dwelled, he realized what will be the final destiny of these sinners. To Asaph, it looked as if the lives of these people were problem-free, successful, and comfortable. But then, as he entered the sanctuary, he realized that a righteous God would cast them down to ruin. He realized that God would judge sinners. Inside the sanctuary, he saw how the righteous God would deal with sinners. Seeing the righteousness and justice of God, 
he realized that God would never ignore sins of these people. The realization startled him quite a bit. He confessed that he could have made a grave mistake by being jealous of sinners' prosperity and their arrogance. He confessed that he was like a beast that could only see near and cannot see far. Then he also realized how dangerous it was to look up to them in the world. So he confessed at the end that the nearness of God is my good, because he realized that when we are far from God, we will be tempted to envy the world. But we can see how worldly prosperity is something that God will judge when we are near God. The real reason we envy worldly prosperity is because we also desire to be prosperous as them. We will only have envious hearts if we live only by looking at the world. But we will see and realize the end of the world when we enter the sanctuary of God. I hope we will all be able to make Asaph's confession our confession. The nearness of God is my good. I'll end today's psalm, This Is My Song, by reading Psalms chapter 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My step had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, the garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness, the imagine of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression, they speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, How does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocent. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places, you cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment! They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge. 
that I may tell of all your works. And God is the strength of my heart. Oh, God is the strength of my heart. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God is the strength of my heart. God is the strength of my heart. God is the strength of my heart and my portion Beside you, my heart and my strength, many times they fail. There is one truth, tonight. but there is one truth that always will prevail. Hey. God is the strength of my heart, oh, God is the strength of my heart.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Milter of Arizona Community Church. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. Well, we are in a series on reverence, walking humbly before your God. And in way of review, here is where we have been. Week number one, we talked about the fear of the Lord. Uh, the fear of the Lord is really the beginning of wisdom. And so this is where we start. We start where the Bible tells us to start. And I said that week, if anybody ever asks you to disciple them, you start here, stay here until this is crystal clear in the lives of those that you are seeking to influence, whether that be your children, grandchildren, neighbors, friends. You want everyone, we all want to know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Week number two, we talked about this, that reverent worship is repentant worship. Many people go, well, what does is, what is reverent worship look like? Well, it looks like this. The sacrifices that God desires are a broken and contrite heart. This is what Psalm 51 says, these I will not despise. So if you come with a repentant heart before the Lord, you can always know that you're coming with reverent worship. So if you miss those messages, you can find them online. Well, most of us have heard of this phrase right here, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. The exact origin of this proverb is unknown. And several variations exist. It appeared in full in a London newspaper in 1828. That's the first time that it appeared in full in writing. In that article, it was referred to as a Portuguese proverb of all things. And while this proverb isn't necessarily a biblical proverb, there is a ton of truth in it nonetheless. This proverb can have several nuanced meanings, but one of the main meanings is simply this, that good intentions can sometimes lead us down really bad roads. Do I hear an amen on that? Yeah, good intentions can sometimes lead us down really bad roads is a truth I know all too well. <laughs> we all can relate to it because we've all had good intentions that led us down a road that turned out to be like, well, I didn't think I'd end up here. We also have been on the receiving end of it where someone else's good intentions have kind of come to bear on us in a way that we haven't liked. Now, the reason I bring that up is because the Bible is full of examples of people who had good intentions but ended up making really bad decisions, what I would call irreverent decisions. Let me give you a quick example. This was not the passage that we're going to be looking at today, but let me give you a quick example of what I'm talking about. The Apostle Peter, 
He's with Jesus and the disciples, and Jesus is telling them, hey, I'm going to go to the cross and die. And this is where this passage picks up. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter, I can insert here, with the best of intentions, took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. I know what's better for you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Peter's intention may have been to protect Jesus, but it was anything but God-honoring. It was what Jesus said. It was the things of men. His mind were set on the things of men. Now, this is important for you and me because it is a reminder that good intentions are never an excuse for irreverent behavior, behavior that is not God-honoring all the time and in every manner. As a matter of fact, I can't stress this enough. There is never a good excuse, period, for irreverent behavior. Now, what do I mean by irreverent behavior? Let me give you a little working definition for this sermon, and it is simply this, irreverence, treating lightly that which God takes seriously. Not surprisingly, the Bible is full of examples of people who fell into this very trap of not taking seriously that which God took seriously. Let me give you an example from the life of a man by the name of Uzzah. Uzzah was part of a group that was carrying the Ark of the Covenant. They were transporting it. Ark of the Covenant was being pulled on a cart by oxen, and the oxen stumble, and the Ark of the Covenant is in danger of falling to the ground. And that's where this passage picks up. Church, it's my privilege to introduce you to Uzzah and to take you to the Word of God this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. Hear the Word of God this morning. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals, much like what we do here. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Verse 7, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Wow. So a little background on the Ark of the Covenant. When God led the people up out of Egypt, he gave them instructions to make a tabernacle, specifically a movable tabernacle. That's what it would have looked like or something close to it. This would have served as a temporary place of worship. The temple would one day be built, but until then, they needed a place to worship. But here's the kicker. They were on the move. They were on the move, so they needed a movable tabernacle. Now, inside the tabernacle were many sacred items, including the Ark of the Covenant. Of course, the Ark of the Covenant is that piece of Old Testament history that we know well because of, why do we know it so well? Indiana Jones, right? Indiana Jones. Let's just all admit it. We're all experts on the Ark of the Covenant because Indiana Jones, it looks something like that. You can see this says Ark Covenant at the bottom and then Mercy Seat at the top. The Ark of the Covenant was that gold chest that God had commanded the Israelites to make as a sign of his covenant with them. Now, in this gold chest were, among other things, the Ten Commandments. Now, the real significance of the Ark was the lid on top of it. And it was known as, and you can barely see it up there, but it says mercy seat. The term mercy seat comes from the Hebrew word that means to cover or appease or to cleanse or to make atonement for. And here's why that's important. It was here that once a year, and you can read about this in Leviticus chapter 16, that the high priest entered the Holy of Holies where the ark was kept, and he atoned not only for his sins, but the sins of all the Israelites. 
And what he did is he sprinkled blood of a sacrificed animal onto the mercy seat. The mercy seat, of course, was a foreshadowing of something to come. And that, of course, is Jesus. Amen? This points forward to Jesus. But until Jesus, this is going to suffice, this mercy seat. So here's this Ark of the Covenant. It holds the Ten Commandments. It is where the high priest atones for the sins of the people once a year. So you can imagine this is a pretty important item. And here's the kicker. God is serious about this thing. As you might expect, because of its significance, God gave very specific instructions on how to handle it, move it, and care for it. And he was not only serious about it, he was dead serious about it. For example, when moving the ark, it was to be carefully covered, never touched, and it was only to be moved with specially designed poles. We read about this in the book of Numbers. So here's a little example of what the Israelites were to do when they moved it. When the camp is to set out, Aaron and his sons shall go and take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. Then they shall put on it a covering of goatskin and spread on top of that a cloth of blue and shall put in its poles. And then it goes on a few verses later in verse 15. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all of the furnishings of the sanctuary, as the camp sets out, after the sons of Koath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. So the instructions are pretty clear, as are the consequences for not obeying. As a matter of fact, God had earlier put to death 70 Israelites for looking at the Ark of the Covenant. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the Ark of the Lord. He struck 70 of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Now, there's great debate. Did these men just look at it in an unworthy manner or did they look inside of it? And I'll leave that for you to decide. I think they looked inside of it. But God was dead serious about their mistake. Now, back to our passage. Back to our passage. You would think that if ever there were a set of circumstances that warranted a little bit of wiggle room, this would be it, right? They're transporting the ark. The oxen stumble. It's about to fall. Poor Uzzah simply reaches out to prevent a potential catastrophe. Just a little bit of wiggle room. Uzzah tried to prevent what he saw as a potential catastrophe, not unlike what Peter did when he said to Jesus, you're not going to the cross. That's a catastrophe. That's not going to happen. But folks, if you get nothing from my message today, simply get this. There is simply never a good excuse for treating lightly that which God takes seriously. Amen? There is never a good excuse for treating lightly that which God takes seriously. As one Bible commentator put this with regard to Uzzah, Uzzah showed a lack of reverence for the majesty of God as symbolized by the ark and showed, now listen to this, a profane familiarity with sacred things. That was his mistake. He showed a profane familiarity with sacred things. AKA, in other words, he put it, Uzzah, or I put this, Uzzah took lightly that which God took seriously. That was his mistake. Now, this may not have been Uzzah's first act of irreverence. Why do I say that? Well, remember, the ark was to be moved with poles, and it was to be carried upon the shoulders of the Levites. Why didn't Uzzah and the Levites do that? Well, perhaps they were looking for the comfortable and convenient way to move the ark instead of the obedient and proper way to move it. But regardless, Uzzah took lightly that which God took seriously, and he acted irreverently as a result. And folks, that's a powerful reminder to you and to me. 
Walking reverently before the Lord may not always be the most comfortable thing to do. It may not always be the most convenient thing to do or the most popular thing to do or the most practical thing to do, but it is always the right thing to do. Amen? Ephesians 5.10, and find out what pleases the Lord. That's the command. Find out, know what pleases the Lord. Because if it's serious to the Lord, it's to be serious to us. Amen? Now, let me give you a practical example of where this plays out in real life. You might think that you have a really good reason to justify a little bit of wiggle room for not taking seriously that which God takes serious, but we never do. There's never a good reason. Let me ask you a question. Does God take marriage seriously? Of course he does. Does he take our purity seriously? You bet he does. Does he take our testimony seriously? You bet he does. Why do I say that? Because we can look at the world and say, the world is you know, out there, it's a mess out there. But we as Christians can look at our own lives and say, is my marriage the way it's supposed to be? Am I treating my spouse the way that I should be treating them and caring for them the way that I should be caring for them? I've also met many professing Christians who with the intention of either saving money or trying to make life easier or more convenient are living together before they get married. And this isn't just young Christians. This is seniors that are doing this as well to save money and to not have to mess up life. And I don't say that to shame anyone because marriage is one of the toughest things, one of the toughest institutions you will ever enter. But we can have good intentions in our marriage that lead us down bad paths, disobedient paths. Uzzah, of course, isn't the only one who was guilty of taking lightly that which God took seriously. You want a great example of someone who made that mistake more than once? Yeah, look no further than King Saul. And you know why that's good news? Because when you make this mistake more than once, you're in good company. I do it all the time. (laughs) I do it all the time. So if, if you make that mistake and you go, gosh, why do I keep doing that? Welcome to the club. In our passage that I want to read about Saul, Saul and the Israelites are face to face with the Philistines. Imagine being face to face with your enemy. They're standing right in front of you. The threat of death is very real. Saul had one job. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 8, he's told, wait for Samuel. Just wait for Samuel. But Samuel doesn't come in the expected time. So Saul, with seemingly the best of intentions, takes matters into his own hands. So church, again, it's my honor to take us to the word of God today. 1 Samuel chapter 13. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal. And all the people followed him trembling. But he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And I think this was a test. I think Samuel and God were testing Saul. And Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the the days appointed... And that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash. I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, 
You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he has commanded to you. Again, as in the case of Uzzah, you would think that if ever there were a set of circumstances that warranted a little bit of wiggle room, this would be it. I'm face to face with the enemy, Lord. They're here and the people are scattering. Samuel, who you told me to wait for, isn't here on time. I'm going to take matters into my own, time, into my own hands. Surely, God, you will understand. Saul wasn't offering sacrifices to a false god. He wasn't offering the wrong offerings. He was being very religious, very pious. Just one problem. He was being disobedient. Which again highlights, if you get nothing from my message, get this. There is never a good reason to take lightly that which God takes seriously. Ephesians 5.10, find out what pleases the Lord. If it pleases the Lord, if it matters to him, it matters to us. Just how serious was God with Saul's failure? This serious. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God. This is Samuel t- telling Saul, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue because of your act of irreverence. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept the Lord, kept what the Lord commanded you. So God takes this very, very serious, and he removes the kingdom from Saul. Now, you would think that Saul would have learned his lesson with this incident, but he's slow to learn. He's slow to learn, like other people I know. He's slow to learn. He's slow to learn that there's never a good reason for taking lightly that which God takes seriously. So remember, this happened at Gilgal. If you fast forward a couple chapters, another famous incident happens at Gilgal with regard to Saul. Let me read it to you. And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord has sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on their way when they came up out of Egypt. So when God led the Israelites up out of Egypt, the Amalekites stood in their way and opposed it. And God noted that. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, and ox and sheep and camel and donkey. God is clear in what he wants, and you can bet he is dead serious about it. Saul, of course, goes to battle and secures the victory. Just one catch. And Saul defeated the Amalekites, from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction." Saul doesn't do as he's commanded. And of course, God sends Samuel to Saul to confront him for contemptuously handling the commands of God. But wait, there's more. Saul seemingly has the best excuse ever for not taking seriously that which God took seriously. This is what happens. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on a mission, on the mission on which the Lord has sent me. 
I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice them to the Lord your God in Gilgal. If ever there were a good excuse, if ever there were a reason for a little bit of wiggle room for not being serious about what God takes serious, this is it. God, I know you told me to devote to destruction these things, but I've got, I got a better plan, God. Just hear me out. I'm not going to do what you said in order to do something better. I'm going to sacrifice these things to you. Saul made the same mistake in the same place, Gilgal. You would think, again, if there were just a little bit of wiggle room, this would be one of the places. But folks, if you get nothing from my message, simply get this. There is never a good excuse for treating lightly that which God takes seriously. Period. End of sentence. Ephesians 5.10. Find out what pleases the Lord. If it matters to him, it matters to us. And when we treat contemptuously what we know God wants, that is the sign of irreverent. That is the sign of an irreverent heart. This is a point, by the way, Samuel drives home to Saul. Listen to what he says. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Here's why that is important for you and me. As human beings, as Christians, we are great at coming up with clever reasons for treating lightly that which God takes seriously. I do it all the time. I do it all the time. It's easy to do. God, I know what you want, but if ever there's a little bit of wiggle room, it's here. Surely it's here, Lord. A little bit of wiggle room for being just a teeny bit disobedient. But no matter how clever our reasoning might be, it will never be clever enough. Let me give you a good example of how this played out in church history. The church in Europe came up with a lot of clever reasons for remaining silent and doing nothing in the face of rising injust Nazi injustices during World War II. After the war was over, the silence of the church and the widespread complicity of ordinary Christians, by the way, compelled leaders of both the Catholic and Protestant churches to address the issue of guilt during the Holocaust. It was undeniable the church failed in World War II, Protestants and Catholics. In November of 2020, the Dutch Protestant church made a far-reaching recognition of guilt for its failure to do more to help the Jews during World War II. Good for them. And for the church's role, they also admitted they prepared the ground in which the seeds of anti-Semitism could grow. Good for them. You see, if we're not careful, we can come up with clever reasons for whatever we're doing. And if we're not careful, we can end up like these guys right here. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest, whew, I'm saved. A priest is coming. A priest was going down the road. And when he saw him, whoops, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, whoo, what are the odds? When he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. 
But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus says, Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor of the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. The priest and the Levite in this parable, no doubt, could have made very, had very compelling arguments for doing what they did. Arguments that were very religious and very pious sounding. Arguments like, Lord, I didn't help him because I was on the way to temple to worship you. Lord, I didn't help him because I didn't want to become ceremonially unclean. Lord, I didn't want to... I didn't want to help him because the other priests and the Levites, they were waiting for me. You know that poker game we have? That's inserted. That has nothing. Anyway, you get my point, folks. None of these arguments would have been good. They never are. They never are. There is never a good reason for taking lightly that which God takes seriously. And here's why that's important. Because the world around us is going to tell us as Christians, hey, take lightly the commands of God. Don't take God that serious. Seriously, if you're going to function as a church in the 21st century, you better compromise a little bit. You better come up with some good reasons for backing down a little bit. The answer to that is no thanks. No thanks. Find out what pleases to God. If it matters to him, it matters to us. Does it not? Amen. It matters to us. If God is serious about it, we are serious about it. And so the question for all of us today is simply this. Is there an area of my life that I am taking lightly that which God takes serious, that he's serious about? And only you know that, you and God. But is there an area of my life, in my marriage, in my finances, whatever it might be, where I have found a great reason to create a little bit of wiggle room for treating contemptuously that which God has clearly commanded. If that's the case, then let today be the day that you make that right. Let today be the day that you make your heart right with the Lord. And here's the great thing about God. If you're like me, if you're like Saul, and you keep making the same mistake in the same place over and over and over again, our God is a God of mercy and grace. Amen. That's the gospel. The gospel is that our God forgives. If you're here today, or if you're watching online, and there has been an area of disobedience or an area where you have not been walking seriously with the Lord, where you know you should. Let today be the day that you make that right. I said it before, I'll say it again. The most miserable Christians I know are the ones that have one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world. You want a recipe for misery? That's it right there. Put both feet in the kingdom and know the joy of walking with the Lord with all of your heart. Amen? Amen. Don't let the world or anyone pressure you. When God says... It matters to him. Let it matter to you.
Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul Ministries on podcast. You can easily play this week or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your vice in only a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries at your iTunes store now. following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. They don't cease from sinning. They're pretending to be believers. But everything they look and observe is in the context of their own sinful desires. Folks, we gotta see this. There are bad people out there and they're on their way to hell and they're disguised. And they know exactly what they're doing. Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. And notice the next little statement here. Enticing unstable souls. Hmm. The word enticing speaks of luring. When you think of a lure, what do you think of? I think of fishing, right? I think of something put on the end of a line that appears to be something that lures someone, or not someone, but some type of a little fishy, right? To go ahead and bite that lure, and then, but yet, they're hooked, right? It actually isn't what they think. They think they're going to get a meal, but what they're going to get is they're going to be the meal, right? It's a lure. Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing Unstable souls. They go after the weak spiritually, by the way. 
enticing unstable souls. That's where they go. Unstable. What's the term unstable mean? It means not settled. There are believers who by reason of sin in their lives are not stable, tossed to and fro, being double-minded. You believe Jesus here, but you don't believe you're worrying about this. You're unstable. You trust Jesus this day, the next day you're all worried about everything all day long. You're unstable. They entice unstable souls. Those who are vulnerable, those who maybe doctrinally are unstable, who could be tossed to and fro by various winds of doctrine because they're not built up. Could be speaking of those who are weak in the faith. They're weak in their understanding of Scripture. And they're unstable. Certainly, again, I can speak of the double-minded. The double-minded, as we see in the book of James. If you're double-minded, don't think you're going to receive anything from the Lord when you pray, right? So if you are unstable in your walk with Christ, you are vulnerable to these guys that are going to come along and lure you. That's what you're vulnerable to. You're vulnerable to that. He doesn't say enticing the solid brothers and sisters that are walking faithfully. He says enticing unstable souls. They go after the weak ones. Let me ask you, is your soul unstable? Do you go in and out emotionally from one thing to another? Do things toss you one way all of a sudden and toss you the other way? Your mind gets caught up in thinking this way all the time and this way all the time? Or do you take those thoughts to Christ and submit your mind and let him control your mind? Are you stable in your walk with Christ or unstable in your walk with Christ? If you are emotionally unstable, spiritually unstable, you are one of those in which they go after. Enticing, luring, lure you in, as we see earlier, with plastic words. They exploit you with false words. They lure you. Because you're unstable. You're unstable, you're vulnerable. If you are an unstable soul and you realize it, just confess your sin. You know, repentance is everything. You confess your sin, you're forgiven. And walk rightly before the Lord. Allow his word to guide your heart. Believe what he says. Don't go back and forth doubting and believing, doubting and believing. Unstable. Believe what God has said. Trust in him with your whole heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, not part of your ways, or you're unstable. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Yes, we all totter up here and there. We all trip up. We all make mistakes. But by and large, you are either stable in your faith with Christ or you are unstable. And if you are unstable, you are an absolute target, as God would say here, enticing unstable souls. Should be a warning to get your walk right with Christ so that you are not vulnerable to bad guys on TV, bad guys on the radio, bad guys in the church. Wherever it might be. There are people who are caught up and are unstable. We've seen this on a small scale where those who get drawn away are unstable in their walks with Christ. they got issues. They go after the ones that are unstable. The vulnerable. Don't animals do the same thing? Animals go after the spiritually unstable. How do they lure them? They do it as they carouse with you, by the way. They do it in the context of fellowship. They get close to you. They lure you. They will exploit you with false words. Chapter 2, verse 3. They will lure you by fleshly desires. Chapter 2, verse 18. Let's take a look at that. Second Peter 2, verse 18. Notice how they lure, by the way. Notice what they put out there with their little satanic fishing rods. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 18. 
for speaking out arrogant words of vanity. These are arrogant words that have no content. By the way, we'll see this next time, but it is an explanation of the fact that they are clouds without water. You think spiritually you're going to be fed, and you're not. You think you're going to be watered, and you're not, because they are arrogant words of emptiness. Notice he says here, while they entice, same word, lure, by fleshy desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in air. They lure the ones who barely escape. They are not living in air, but they barely escape because they're unstable. You see? They're barely walking with Christ, by the way. Barely. They do it through fleshly desires. They appeal through their false words to your desires. Your desire to not do this or that or whatever it might be. Your desires. They appeal to those things rather than God's will. Rather than God's will. They appeal to the sensuality, which is the same word licentiousness. A license, in a sense, to not obey God's word because of maybe what's going on in your life. Whatever it might be. You can hear those things. Well, we know you've had a bad childhood, and yeah, that's okay why you don't do this, even though God says so, right? Oh, no, they appeal to your flesh and your sensuality, a license to sin. They mix in false, twisted words. They ultimately pull you away from complete dependence on Christ and faith in Him, believing what He said, where we will stand and don't fall from your own steadfastness. Don't fall. If you're unstable, you're close, by the way. They'll lure you in, following Jesus through spirituality rather than faith, giving you a license to get away with sin. We always think of it as immoral sin. Maybe it's just not forgiving someone. Maybe it's being angry. Maybe it's worrying. Whatever it might be, you have a license. It's okay, in a sense. They won't say that, but the ultimate outcome, what they say is. And notice, not only do they count it joy to deceive believers, they love it. They love what they get from it. They love what they get from it. Towards the end of verse 14, having a heart trained in greed. Having a heart trained in greed. This is interesting. We know the term greed. We looked at it before. It speaks of an intense, selfish desire for something, especially wealth, power, position, or a following or gratification, whether it's sexual, whatever it might be. It could be translated covetousness. It's an intense evil desire, wanting something you don't have. You see, because greedy never fulfilled, by the way. It never fulfills you. Greed is a good translation. Remember, we saw it back in verse 3, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. The desire to make money off ministry, power, receive position, a following, or sensual gratification drives what they're doing. They benefit by deceiving people and having them follow after them. They benefit in some way, whether financial, personal, or relational. It is greedy. And they have what we're going to see here is a heart that is continually, habitually having been traded in greed. It's continually, habitually greedy having already in the past, which affects them. It's a done deal. It's already been trained. The term trained comes from our Greek word, gymnazo, to work out a gym, right? Their hearts in the past have been completely worked out in greed. They have trained in it, and it's done, and that affects them now, and that heart is continually that way now. That's the way they are. And if we don't see this, we're not going to see the danger, folks. God shares this so we know the danger. See, because we tend to not think no one could actually be that way. When we see the signs from their behavior, which we'll see later on next week, you can read it in advance, then you'll know why God cherishes these things.
Heart trained in greed. False teachers are greedy. They make whatever it's for the money off ministry, the power they receive, the position, the spiritual following, the gratification, whatever it is, that's what drives them to deceive you. They love the way that they have strayed. Notice this. They love the wages of what they do in unrighteousness. They love it. They love the wages of what they do in unrighteousness. We're going to see that. They love the way that they have strayed. They love the paycheck, the power, the position, the spiritual falling, the sexual gratification. They have hearts trained in it. And here we see what the Lord is sharing, that it is ugly. But that's what's going on in the heart. The identifying marks. And in reality, they are not believers. They are not children of God. They are children of a curse. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed, Moses, end of 14, accursed children. Here we see very clearly they are children, literally children of a curse. They are accursed children. They are not blessed. They are not believers that are blessed in Jesus Christ. They are cursed. They are accursed children. Turn to Jeremiah 17, verse 5. Jeremiah 17, verse 5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. We're going to see later on. They turned away from the Lord. They turned away and went back to their vomit. Cursed. These are children of a curse. Turn to Hebrews chapter 6. And this is a passage that has caused a lot of people some consternation based on the fact that they understand the truth that someone who is truly saved cannot lose their salvation. That is true. But there are those who appear to be saved who are not saved who will then show their true colors and reveal that they are accursed. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. For in the case of those who have been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. They have been convicted by the Spirit of God. The word of God has convicted them. They've partaken of that. Some of you have. You've been convicted of the truth of God and the good things to come. You've heard of that truth in the scriptures. You've been around true believers. You've seen it. You've seen it. And have tasted, verse 5, the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have what? Fallen away, apostatized. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him in open shame. For, and there's an example from the ground here, from the ground drinks up the rain which often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful for those whose sake it is tilled receives a blessing from God. You know, the ground that gets the water and has the crops come up, it's a blessing, right? It's an example. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and ends up being burned. And he's going to say, but we have better things for you believers, you're true believers, but those who aren't, who exhibit that through their true behavior, these, back in our passage, are accursed children. They're not believers they are cursed, accursed children. That's what God says. And notice, they're not children of God, but they portray themselves to be so, but they have forsaken the right way. Look at verse 15 back in Second Peter chapter 2. 
forsaking the right way. We're going to see this in detail next time in verses 20 and 21. They knew the right way. The right way is through faith in Jesus Christ, recognizing you're a sinner. They understood that, that he is Lord, as we'll see in verse 21, Lord and Savior. They knew that. And the right way is to follow Jesus by faith, having come to faith in Jesus Christ, forsaking. They have turned away from the right way. They have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a dumb donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet. Some of you may or may not know the story of Balaam back in Numbers chapter 22 and 23. Some of you may be familiar, but if you're not, I'm just going to summarize it very quickly. He was a wicked prophet. We see in the book of Numbers, he was hired by Balak, the king of Moab, Israel's enemy, to curse Israel. But God would not let him do so. And in his madness, Balaam's madness and disobedience to God, Numbers 22, the Lord confronted him with the sword drawn and Balaam's donkey, seeing the Lord wouldn't move. And Balaam struck him a few times. And Balaam even said, if I had a sword, I would have killed you. And then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and he speaks to Balaam in his madness. Balaam has a conversation with the donkey, not realizing the Lord was against him. And then notice what our passage says. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a dumb donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet. You see, these bad guys have forsaken the right way and gone astray, and they've gone the way of Balaam. Well, what's the way of Balaam? It is one who loved the wages of unrighteousness. He loved the paycheck he got for his sin. He loved it. And his sin was being a prophet, quote-unquote. And the way he did things. You see, in Scripture also reveals Revelation 2.14 that Balak kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols to commit acts of immorality. He taught wickedness. So here, why would Balaam do such a thing? Why would false teachers do such a thing? Look at the end of verse 15. Who loved the wages of unrighteousness. These false teachers have known the right way. We'll see it next week. The right way in Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. The right way they've known it. Maybe they're like you. You've been in the church. You've heard the truth of God. And you haven't responded. I pray that you don't go the wrong way. I pray you trust in Christ. They've known the right way. But they went astray. And notice they love the wages of unrighteousness. They love luring believers and deceiving them, unstable souls. They love it. They love what they get out of it. They love carousing with you in your love face. They love it. They have heart trains and greed, and the paycheck they get for their horrible unrighteousness against the Lord and his people is power, position, followers, control, sexual gratification, self-gratification. They love the way they have strayed. And we need to know that. Because Peter said earlier, false teachers will arise among you. It's going to happen. Now next week, we're going to see very specifically how we can recognize these false teachers. We've seen the heart today. We've seen what's going on, and it is ugly, and it is awful. But we can't see that. God shows us the heart. We've seen it through the Word of God. You can't point to anyone and say this is happening in their heart. 
But God is going to show us what their actions are like when they have hearts like these, that we would avoid those who are such. I began speaking about how do we recognize when there are evil people among us? How do we recognize it? Sometimes we're unwilling to acknowledge that people could be that evil, that they could deliberately lie, that they could deliberately deceive people, they could deliberately flatter for the sake of gaining advantage. It's hard to say if someone would do that. But we've seen the first part where God wakes us up to show us the internal workings of those who have turned away from the Lord and they love the way that they have strayed. And it's a warning to us. So with that in mind, just to summarize, I just want to read through the passage rather than summarizing each piece, as usually there's a lot of pieces here. Let's go back to verse 9. I want to read through the passage. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Verse 9. And especially those who indulge in the flesh and its corrupt desires to despise authority. Daring self-will, they do not tremble or fear when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a dumb donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet. Next week we're going to see their actions, which can help us avoid such men. But how does this apply to us? Some of you here are on the verge of being accursed children. You know the truth. You know the way, the right way. You know the right way is through faith in Jesus Christ. Don't harden your heart. Turn before it's too late. Or you might find yourself turning away from what you say you believe. Truly turn to Christ. Or you might find that happens. And sometimes, as Scripture says, it might even be impossible to renew someone to repentance. Don't turn away. Turn to Christ. But what about believers? We need to see and understand there are people like this. God says so. We need to see that. And when we come across those situations where we just can't believe it, but we see the actions that identify it, we need to go to the Word of God to have God's Word inform our hearts and minds so that we are not deceived by our own emotions and affections. We need to do that. These false teachers infiltrate the church. They're in the open, and then they secretly in the open attempt to deceive believers. They love it. They revel in it. It brings them joy to deceive and lie to you, to secretly introduce destructive heresies, to pull you away from growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. But God is a good God. God wants us to trust in his Son, to walk in a manner worthy to rely on him, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. And so he warns us of the threats to that. And I pray that we listen.
now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.